Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancharmani on December 17th with Bart Leachins, a Zen Buddhist monk and social entrepreneur who pioneered the use of rats for identification of landmines. The video replay of the discussion is available at www.mancharmani.com. Okay, well, thanks everybody for joining uh, this last webinar for the Think for Yourself webinar series in 2020. Uh, I am absolutely honored today to have Bart Weekends with us. Um, and before we get into them, uh, the traditional uh, listing of prior webinars uh, is something I will go through uh, and remind everyone, especially those who didn't listen to some of them, that replays are available. Uh, so last week we had Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy Grantham is the legendary investor, bubbleologist, uh, founder of G uh, Grantham Mayo Van Otterloo, an investment firm in Boston, uh, but he also runs the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. And so he spent a lot of time talking about investing to improve the planet. Um, and that was a wonderful discussion. I encourage you to see the replay if you didn't participate. Uh, before that, we had Hank Crumpton. Ambassador Crumpton uh, spent 20-something years, 24 years uh, in the clandestine service of the CIA around the world, a lot of time in Africa. Uh, and he talked about uh, the role of intelligence in navigating uncertainty uh, to not only see uh, risks, but also to spot opportunities, a, a two-sided uh, discussion. Um, before that, we had uh, Professor Stu Friedman, who is the founder of the leadership program at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And he talked about his recent book, which was about taking leadership lessons and applying it to your personal life, specifically parenting. Um, and some of the anxieties that parenting has produced and some wonderful uh, collections of tidbits and, and strategies that he provided. Uh, which again, I highly recommend the replay. Um, before that, we had uh, Professor Rebecca Listner. Re Rebecca is at the Naval War College, the US Naval War College as, in the, uh, as a professor where she teaches grand strategy and her most recent book, which she co-authored was called An Open World. Um, and she talked to us about America in particular, the foreign policy of America in a Biden administration. And so uh, that was a very insightful, real politic kind of worldview. Um, before that, we had uh, Professor Roger Martin, uh, also a business academic, uh, who is the legendary dean of uh, the Rotman School up at the University of Toronto. Um, he had written a new book called When More Is Not Better, really a criticism of, of democratic capitalism and the quest for more and more greater efficiency. Um, and he thought maybe there was a trade-off with resilience or, or sort of inclusiveness, and, and maybe we should consider that as an objective. Um, David Katz, medical doctor, co-author of the book, How to Eat. Uh, this is a, uh, was a really fun discussion. Uh, actually, my, my children got a huge kick out of the fact that I was reading a book called How to Eat. They said, Daddy, you know, you're 40-something you're years old. You should know how to eat by now. But in fact, we can all learn. So uh, uh, Dr. Katz provided some insights there. Uh, Lieutenant General uh, retired Susan Helms. Um, three-star retired Air Force general uh, joined us to talk about space. She was an astronaut. She spent uh, 211 days in outer space uh, on the space station, as well as I think five shuttle missions. Uh, really interesting discussion. Uh, and so that's available. Before that, Dean Rakesh Karana, Dean of Harvard College. Uh, education in a time of pandemics, uh, COVID, mental health of students, other topics were discussed. Again, that replay is available. And uh, the first person we started this fall portion of the series this year with was uh, Annie Duke. Annie is a former professional poker player who now teaches people how to navigate uncertainty and think about making decisions. Uh, and she also had a new book out called How to Decide. And of course, this whole series was started to support uh, and promote my book called Think for Yourself, which is also available. Uh, last tidbit before we uh, begin the discussion with Bart is uh, if you have suggestions for me of guests that you might want to see or topics that you might want to have addressed in the spring, please email me. This is my email address, vikram at mantramani.com, and I would be thrilled 
to uh, to try to incorporate your your requests and see if I can find people to address particular topics of interest. Uh, so with that long-winded uh, introduction, apologies. Thank you for bearing with me, Bart. Uh, that's the advertising portion of the event <laughs> uh, required, uh, so to say. But now that we're here, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So Bart, you've had an absolutely fascinating uh, career trajectory. Um, and I'm hoping you can begin by sharing some of your personal story, uh, even before you got into the social entrepreneurship uh, story, which I, I know you're quite famous for. But before we get there, uh, where did you grow up? What was life like? What were your values? What, what do you think were your biggest influences even then? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's start it from, from the beginning. Well, I was born in Antwerp, Belgium, where I am living currently again. Um, I was born as the youngest in a family of uh, uh, six. Okay. Uh, it's including the parents, so I had uh, three older brothers. And, um, you know, as a youngest um, with three older brothers, uh, I had to learn a lot of social and emotional skills to, to be able to stand my ground. And... Um, I think it's probably what uh, this together with uh, the, the strong social orientation of my parents who are like uh, leftish Catholic uh, people, very committed to community engagement. Um, mm -hmm. I think that is what probably um, set me on rails for a life of service. Um, and um, my family had a strong connection with uh, Zaire at that time, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, where my uncle was uh, teaching at uh, Lovanium University in Kinshasa. Okay. And um, when I was, I think, six or seven years old, my parents um, made a visit there. At that time, traveling to Africa was still a bit of a, an adventure. And, uh, and they came back with lots of exotic stories um, and with a, a whole slideshow that we repeatedly uh, viewed whenever we had visitors. So I got a lot of influence from uh, seeing uh, tropical pictures, uh, visits in, in, in villages, uh, in coffee plants, because my, my uncle was one of the co-founders also of the Max Havelaar fair trade brand. Um, and so I was exposed to a lot of fair world's engagements. Uh, and well, I think that set me on rails to, to uh, study product design. And in product design, I focused on appropriate technologies for, at that time we called them developing countries. Yeah. Um, let's say the global south. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and it's kind of a connection I never lost. A connection with vulnerable communities mm -hmm. and questioning how I can empower these communities to tackle their challenges more independently. Interesting. And so, so it sounds like it was very specifically Africa or maybe even uh, the DRC uh, that was the motivating factor, so to say. My sense is you've spent time elsewhere in Africa uh, as well. Uh, just curious if you have any reflections on some of the perhaps differences that you've noticed. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Africa on the African continent. Uh, I had the privilege of serving on uh, the Africa Opportunity Fund board and was able to see a little bit of Northern Africa, Western Africa, Eastern Africa, mm -hmm. Southern Africa, and there, there are definitely differences. I'm curious if you're, you're, the differences you may have observed led to different thinking of how you could interface and be helpful to different portions of Africa, whether it's because of the different colonial um, heritage of a particular place uh, that tends to have left different infrastructure behind or whether mm -hmm. it's an environment or what have you. But I'm sort of curious how you thought about the different portions of Africa. Yeah, several, several levels there of thought. Um, one thing to start with indeed, as you say, Africa is, is hugely diverse. Uh, it's there's so many cultures within even every country, like a country like Congo, for instance, has more than 600 languages. Yeah. Country like Tanzania, where I lived for 12 years, which is still the headquarters of the organization that I founded, has more than 120 tribes. Mm -hmm. um, there is in most countries, almost all of them, a strong uh, like uh, colonial influence. 
uh, depending how they've been colonized. And you can see that through language, through infrastructure, how society is organized through the legal systems, um, which are generally different. Um, Tanzania has adopted, and I know Tanzania better, well, Tanzania, Angola, Mozambique, uh, Congo, and then also some countries in, in, in Northern Africa, I know, I know a little bit better than the rest. Um, but uh, m m I have a strong fascination for Tanzania for, for multiple reasons. Yeah. And one is that uh, Tanzania has never really been colonized. It's been a, a German and afterwards a British protectorate. And there is a, a strong sense of African identity. Um, there's also a country where uh, Swahili is the national language, um, where people identify as Tanzanian in the first place. And, and it's very interesting to see how, what we would call in South Africa, what we would call Ubuntu, the, the deep connection to each other. My reason for existence is because we, as a group are that collective, how that informs everything in society. Whereas I would say our Northern or Western thought is more of a Cartesian principle where my reason for existence is the fact that I'm able to think in a discriminatory way. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the social entrepreneurship uh, business, so to say. And in particular, you know, I've had some, uh, some questions that were sent in in advance. One of the questions I received um, said, how did you even think about balancing the social angle with the entrepreneurship angle? Uh, because, you know, th there's a sort of need for sustainability and funding, etc., cetera, uh, to have real lasting impact. Uh, but then there's trade-offs, right? Uh, between the social side of entre social entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurship side of social entrepreneurship. Um, so how did you think about that balancing act part? Yeah, well, um... First of all, I only learned about the term social entrepreneurship when uh, I was labeled uh, a social okay. entrepreneur. Okay, so <laughs> there was no intention in me of becoming a social entrepreneur in the first place. Okay, um, but yeah. but still, I mean, it's it's important because it's a whole trend that was uh, basically the term social entrepreneurship was coined by Bill Drayton, founder of Ashoka, in yeah. the seventies, and uh, what Bill saw was uh, a pattern in society where uh, do-gooders um, with an entrepreneurial drive who weren't happy to just, well, the, the way he explains, I love his, his explanation, actually. He said, he, these social entrepreneurs are not uh, satisfied with feeding a man a fish. Yeah. They're not even satisfied with people teaching people how to fish. These entrepreneurs won't sleep until they have reorganized the entire fishing industry. Yeah. That's the kind of ambition or magnitude of, of scale that the that um, the social entrepreneurs in general have as a as a visionary basis. Gotcha. So they're people who are who are very ambitious, who have a strong ethical fiber, yeah. who manage to uh, build a team around them and gain support. Uh, so there's a, a certain charismatic factor, uh, certainly in most of them there. Um, and there are people who, well, who find an, an innovative solution to an unjust equilibrium in society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, we know many of them, right? I mean, there's many, many challenges. So people who find an innovative way to, to tackle those challenges. So part, the, the fascinating part, and I know your story is well known for lots of people, but just hearing it in your own terms now, I think the TED talk was, was years ago, uh, but how did you come to the topic or even the problem of landmines? Um, what, what drew you to that specifically? Was there an interaction? Was there someone coming forth saying, Bart, we have this tough problem, help us. Or was it that you identified and went and said, this is a problem, this is an injustice, this is a situation I need to remedy. I'm a do-gooder, here's an opportunity for me to do good. Yeah, rather the second. Indeed, I, I was yeah. focused on creating more equity and, and empowering vulnerable communities and by preference in the global South uh, with a focus on Africa, clearly. Mm -hmm. But then it wasn't really clear what problem to challenge. And uh, there, we're talking 95. 
there was, uh, well, Belgium, France, and Canada had uh, these three countries basically together had unilaterally um, created the ban on landmines, which then became the Ottawa, well, first the Ottawa process and uh, the Ottawa Treaty, and which then became the whole international campaign to ban landmines. Landmines became uh, a big item in the media. It became clear there was also Princess Diana supporting uh, the landmine calls. There were a few NGOs uh, like Handicap International at that time uh, working with, uh, that's one thing I, I, I noticed, they were working with, for instance, in Cambodia with making prosthetics in uh, locally available materials. And I thought, well, this is a kind of approach I like because it's appropriate technology. It's within reach of these communities to get more independent from expensive imported know-how and goods. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started focusing on the landmine problem because landmines form a structural barrier to any development. As long as there is, and it's even independent from the number of landmines that are there, as long as there is suspicion of these devices being a threat to the community, people will well flee their villages and, and, and prefer uh, living in refugee camps. Um, so I wanted to work on that one in particular. Um, yeah, I think that answers your question, right? Yeah, and so it sounds a little bit like it was the topic that was very present at the time and you recognized an opportunity to address a, a relevant concern. So uh, the, then the, the interesting question is, how did you then go about it? Or what, what was the approach? So now you've got a problem, you've got an intention to go achieve something. So how? I mean, I, there are a lot of problems in the world that I would love to address and make the world better. Sometimes you find yourself paralyzed by life, by resources, by other opportunities, but you, you, you broke through some of these challenges. So what was your approach? And, and then yeah. obviously, how did you come to the idea of using rats? That's obviously a very telling story. Yeah, well, there's multiple factors there. And one of it is, is, is sheer luck, definitely. Apart from that, I think I had a strong drive um, I had nothing to lose. I was uh, at that time living in Belgium and I was, uh, well, I had turned my back against the industry uh, because I had, I had some experience after my studies which were not so uh, beneficial. And, and I felt like, okay, I, I really want to do something. I don't want to do harm. Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. To, to start with. Um, and so I was reluctant to work in an established system and, and probably my work first work experience where probably I had too much responsibility for a starter uh, gave me that uh, little reluctance type of, mm -hmm. of attitude. Um, so I, I, uh, I actually started painting because I thought with painting, I can't do anything wrong. I can, in the best case, inspire people. And that's what I did for a few years, actually. I did a few exhibitions. And at one of these exhibitions, the second one, um, the director of the design school at Antwerp University uh, came and he was my mentor. And, um, and he knew about me. I mean, we knew each other well. He had been my mentor during studies. And, um, and he said, Bart, uh, I don't think you will ever become a successful painter. I said, well, that's encouraging. <laughs> and, um, and he said, let's have a lunch. And basically over that lunch, he, um, he questioned me, like, you know, you have a very, he knew me, of course, he knew me well. I had a very strong social engagement while actually at that point, I had honestly a bit disconnected. And, uh, and he said, uh, well, why, well, why don't you look at a societal problem? And because of landmines being in the media, uh, those weeks around those events, um, I said, well, landmines are a clear problem. Maybe I could work on landmines. He said, you know, do that. I'm going to support you. He, he said, spend half of your time, you continue painting. And the other half of the time, I'm going to support you to make an analysis of this problem, to know it inside out. Yeah. I'll send you to conferences, you study the, the thing, I'll introduce you to the, to the military and so on. And that's where it took off, at least first of all, with an analysis of the problem. Yeah. And then at one of those conferences, I met a, a Dutch guy um, who had had a, an, a, a scholarship from the Dutch government. 
to do that work of analysis of the landmine problem. And he had collected lots of research papers. And the moment, well, we were sitting, uh, this, this type of uh, crucible moments, the, uh, the, the strong, strong imprints. I, um, we were sitting together in Edinburgh uh, at the bar around a single malt whiskey. And he had this big pile of uh, scientific papers, you know, all about uh, different ways of detecting landmines. By that time, I knew that detection was the biggest challenge. Uh, uh, and, and so it, it would have to be in the field. And, uh, and I was on the same wavelength as he was in the sense that we were both looking for appropriate technologies. And he came up with this paper of uh, American scientists from, uh, from New York, actually, uh, who had uh, in a laboratory setup uh, proven that uh, gerbils could discriminate the scent of explosives by uh, electrical brain stimulation with electrodes implanted in the brain, not a very sustainable technique, not very, let's say, replicable and, and humane towards the animals, but at least it was scientific evidence. And when I saw that paper, I knew I was going to train rats. And the reason yeah. there is that as a boy, I grew up uh, breeding all kinds of rats. When I was nine years old, I received a hamster and I, uh, I actually uh, had a, uh, another hamster and we they had babies and we sold these babies to the oh. pet shops and I gained pocket money for that. And then I saw all kinds of other rodents, hamsters, rats, mice, gerbils, you name it. I yep. bred all of those and, and, and sold them. And so I knew that in spite of what most people think of rats, I knew they were highly intelligent, highly mm -hmm. sociable. They had a very keen sense of smell and that they were very trainable. Interesting. And then... Well, looking at the landmine problem, I immediately saw that there could be a potential solution. Uh, anyway, and that's where the research process started. And, and, yeah. and then you started training rats. And then we started training rats. I didn't immediately uh, know what species, because yep. from a taxonomic point of view, rats are actually one of the most successful mammals, actually. Yeah more than 40% of all mammal species are some kind of rodent. Uh, in the, you have them in all sizes from the capybara, which is uh, like the size of a big dog uh, in, in, in the Amazon forest to a yeah. tiny little mouse the size of my fingernail uh, in Australia. Yeah. Um, and uh, I went to see a, a rodent specialist at Antwerp University. Mm -hmm. And uh, this professor uh, had worked in Tanzania uh, and he had studied uh, Chrysetomys gambianus, or the African giant pouched rat. Uh, and this rat appeared to have some advantages because it lived long, uh, like up to eight years. Um, it was quite resilient to tropical disease. I mean, it was endemic to, to Africa. Um, and there was some indication that they would have a keen sense of smell uh, because they trace back their food stocks uh, in the dry season, in the rainy season, they make underground burrows where they store food and they find back these foods based on their sense of smell. Um, so this was actually a natural behavior which was already close to detecting another sense underground. And um, so we chose that species and yeah, and then we, we, we got in partnership with uh, Sokoina University of Agriculture in Tanzania, which then later became our headquarters. Uh, and we were successful in, in breeding that species in captivity with uh, devising a, a training protocol based on positive behavior reinforcement. Um, and ultimately, and I'm now jumping like uh, over a period of nine years, uh, yeah. we were able to, to have a replicable technology that was accredited according to international mine action standards yep. and, uh, and started being used in the field. And then I know we're jumping forward here, Bart, but then you, managed to actually have major success attributed to this technology. It wasn't just that it was deployed to the field. That's it's a very humble way to describe what transpired, but uh, maybe just very quickly touch on sort of the success of, uh, of how it worked out. Yeah. So, working, still working. Well, it, it is reasonable to, to uh, speak humbly about this because there were many factors that uh, it could have gone very different. As much as the whole mine action community was shouting for novel technologies, once we had ours ready uh, to be rolled out, 
um, there was a lot of reluctance. What we didn't realize is that this is a highly conservative industry that is donor funded. Uh, so mainly most of the funding coming from governments and development cooperation budgets. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so not really the place where people are uh, mm -hmm. tempted to take risks or, or, um, or go for novel uh, innovations. Uh, it needed to be proven more. So the first few years, we had to set up our own operations and prove that if you use detection rats technology within the whole mine action uh, operation cycle, uh, that we could reduce costs dramatically. And that's what we did. Yep. Um, so after that being proven, um, and we proved that in, in Mozambique on, on residual minefields, and Mozambique at that time was actually uh, progressing really well in, in its mine uh, action, in mine clearance process. Um, most NGOs were leaving the country and we took over these operations. Mm -hmm. And uh, by uh, where the country had prospected to reach their targets uh, of clearing the country of all suspected minefields by 2017, we were able to do that two and a half years before the country's schedule with much less resources and uh, and much faster uh, thanks to the detection rats yeah amazing amazing story so uh that's fabulous um before we move on to hearing about some of your more current activities i know you're not day-to-day -day involved in the detection rats anymore uh, Bart. i have a question that came in online here that i, I thought would be appropriate to ask at this stage which is how do you think about the difference between social entrepreneurship and venture capitalists who work through the capitalist system to disrupt legacy business models? Uh, and in the process, they believe they are doing good while doing well, right? On behalf of themselves and, and the sources of capital, right? Families that entrust them with their hard-earned capital, et cetera. Um, you know, there are different ways to do this. Uh, so I'm curious how you think those... Uh, do good intentions, whether it's disruption within a, a for-profit system or um, disruption from not the profit system. Yeah, well, I have no opinion about this. Uh, what I see is that indeed, as you say, this is a, a very uh, broad field. So there's, it's a whole spectrum. Um, there's a myriad of ways of dealing, for instance, the B course, for instance, is a, is a very gentle um, and an agile way of, of combining one with the other, um, all kinds of hybrid structures. There's a, I've seen uh, non-profit organizations that make big profits and I've seen uh, uh, purely capital uh, oriented structures that are actually, uh, yeah, doing a lot of, of good. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's really not in the structure, how it is structured. It's really what is the intention and, and, and what is the impact? What is the result? And I see uh, capital structures as um, agile ways to get uh, organized around resources. Um, and, and of course, there are big advantages to, to for-profit structures. Um, and, and venture capitalists, I know several do really fantastic work. Um, there are also um, the other side of the equation is also, or the other side of the, of the let's say of, of that spectrum is also much needed. There are things that you simply cannot solve with, um, for instance, um, uh, well, one fantastic uh, organization I know in Zimbabwe working with, uh, with disability support, uh, the, like how, like in, in countries where, uh, where resources are limited, um, how to get access to wheelchairs for people with disabilities. These type of things are very tough to, to really find an, a profitable model around. So yeah. I'm convinced all of these are needed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think look, just, there's no shortage of need for good ideas and sort of innovative solutions to our many problems. Yeah. And, 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 and it's not in the form how we organize this. I am inclined to think the form should follow the function. If yeah. indeed it is a, something that allows for, uh, for yeah, to invest in, uh, why not? Uh, and yeah, so, so it really depends on, on what the goal is here. Okay. So then, uh, Bart, you decided to take a different role, more focused on 
wellness and you're now a practicing Zen priest, right? Uh, so maybe talk about the transition from sort of day-to-day rat detections, detection rat technology entrepreneur in the field, helping clear countries of landmines and sort of, you know, doing that kind of day-to-day good work to the more, um, you know, uh, thoughtful, contemplative, possibly, uh, you know, mindful approach to your life now. So, you know, A, the transition and then describe what you do now. Well, the transition for me was logic. And uh, honestly, I've been a, a Zen practitioner even before I started Apopo. Huh? So this is uh, a constant in my life. Uh, and where I, well, I'm labeled as a great innovator. I am not necessarily somebody who is happy to run a global organization with operations in more than 10 countries. Yeah. Um, and I think there's people who are better uh, talented for that. So I think my talent is somewhere else. And uh, as the organization grew and we started having uh, spin-offs and, and satellite uh, support organizations in Switzerland and in the US and, and now in the UK as well, uh, we, I became more and more distant from the operations. I became more and more of a, of a person who goes out to tell the story and uh, which was an essential role as well. But now there's like a new generation within the organization who can bring that story. So at the moment where in 2015, where we reached that milestone of uh, Mozambique free of landmines, I felt it was the right moment to let go of power. And, um, and I don't regret it for a moment because that creates a new uh, energy in the organization. And honestly, I think, we, especially in the social entrepreneurial field where um, people have the tendency to over-identify with what they do, um, that it is healthy to take distance, to let go and, and reinvent oneself. Yeah, no, that's fabulous. And so then why did you choose to reinvent yourself in this way? I mean, there are still many problems. You're a do-gooder. There, you know, there's other, there were other solutions you might have gone to produce for other grand problems. Well, let's look at what these grand problems are and what the real structural causes yep. of these problems are um, well as a you know i'm a zen buddhist so for me at the root of all these things are what the buddha calls the three poisons their greed their hatred and their ignorance with ignorance being the biggest source of our delusions uh, because it's really because of of not understanding who we are in relation to the universe that we are equal integrally part of the universe rather than something separate, uh, which is the the function of the ego, which is needed by the way, but it is also the source of our biggest suffering. Mm -hmm. So looking at this, um, I think I have my contribution as a do-gooder can be better in supporting people uh, to gain more consciousness and, uh, and to understand those principles and uh, and, and yeah, and then support people with their, their inner path rather than uh, working directly on, on impact in the world. I now work with leaders of organizations and companies alike and help them shift their view on reality, uh, which in return changes the culture in their organizations and in their companies. And that in itself is very grateful for me to see that type of impact. Yeah. So it's still on the impact side. <laughs> yes, no, no, that's wonderful. I think it's great. Um, you know, I want to turn to, there's a whole bunch of questions I have here, Bart, but before, one of the things that I have found uh, is very, very uh, well-received from the audience that tends to listen is um, they love hearing book suggestions or even movie suggestions. So do you have a favorite book? Um, or one you would recommend? Fiction. It doesn't have to be your favorite Fiction or non-fiction? Either. I, doesn't let me do both. Um, actually, non- the non-fiction side, uh, I'm reading this now, uh, Presence by Peter Senge and his colleagues, it's, which is an exploration of profound change in people, organization, and society. Okay. That's what I'm reading now. Perfect. Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Yep. Uh, from around your corner, I would say. Yep. Yes, that's um, right. Yep. And uh, as a fiction book, um, one that is really big for me that uh, I've read a long time ago, which is Paulo Coelho, 
um, the alchemist. The alchemist, yes. With uh, and this famous quote from the alchemist, where um, at some point says, uh, "When a man pursues his destiny, the whole universe conspires to make that happen." which I found always a leading uh, force or, or kind of compass for me uh, to follow my intuition and, and, uh, and, and yeah, make sometimes bold decisions that are not necessarily uh, the most logic in a, in a career, uh, yeah. yet uh, are the ones that made me most uh, profoundly happy and fulfilled. Yep. Yeah. yep. And then I find this somewhat ironic that I'm asking you, Bart, as a Zen Buddhist priest to tell me uh, which movies you might watch or what your Netflix series you may appreciate. There's a little irony in even asking the question, but let me ask it. <laughs> well, uh, I'm in the first place a human being and, uh, and yeah. well, and I do, I don't watch so much TV, but I do, I have the, a series on Netflix that uh, really uh, touched me. I got bitten by it. Uh, I was completely hooked on uh, it, it, um, it's a Spanish series, Casa de Papel. In, uh, in English, it was a Money Haste, uh, which is a basically a crime uh, series with a fantastic plot uh, yeah. of people like basically uh, creating a, a heist where they, uh, they break into the, the national bank, the Spanish national bank, and print billions of, of uh, euro billions. Uh, yeah. 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 That sounds like American Central Bank is doing it, but they didn't heist anything. They're just printing the money. <laughs> well, you know, we don't have to talk about this one. That's a different problem. <laughs> so uh, relating to this topic of sort of interacting with modern technologies and media, et cetera, Bart, I'm curious if you have suggestions, thoughts, tidbits. You know, nowadays we're all surrounded by these devices. We get technology throwing at us here. It's hard to be mindful or it's hard to be you know, it's hard not to be distracted. It's hard not to have your attention pulled here or there. What are your thoughts on technology and modern life? Yeah, uh, it's both a blessing and a curse, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the blessing part is, of course, we are able to do things now that are also, interestingly, very needed in this time to have that ability of artificial intelligence and so on. And in the same time, if you see at the a, at a personal well-being level, um, as you say, these things are often distracting us, um, keeping us often functional at um, way too high cortisol levels, creating a, a permanent underground of, of stress levels in people that are way beyond what our systems are created for or what we are, uh, what is good for us. Um, and um, well, we are wired for, uh, to, with a bias for negative experience through evolution it's, that's a fact like we we had all interest to see the the predator coming out of the bush otherwise we wouldn't survive as a species what technology is often doing with us uh, currently is that we stay constantly connected that we we see all these advantages and that we basically um well, what did we do, just the two of us? What did we do at the beginning of this call? We put off our notifications that we're not being disturbed. And that's great. I mean, that's really needed to have a real conversation. Um, yet, and I, I fall in the same trap. I do, I do the same. I have these notifications off and on. Um, I learned to manage this better by building healthy boundaries around the technology and use technology within a framework of my control rather than being controlled by the technology. And yeah. I think that's a key there. Um, to the extent where we can put our own well-being central, listen into our own personal needs, uh, feel them in our body even, so there's, our stress levels are often like way too high, feel those, uh, it's to that extent that we can work with them, transform them and, and create indeed healthy boundaries on how we, how we interact with technology. Yeah, it's interesting, Bart. One of the things I've done in my attempt to reclaim control is I, I still have the smartphone, but I've now moved to a dumb phone mm -hmm. um, where the phone is it literally, it requires you to type in the old school. I mean, some younger 
maybe millennials on this webinar may not recognize this is sort of how you used to touch buttons to dial. Uh, and, and it only is a phone. It's not, you, you talk on it. You don't text people, you don't it, you talk. And so I've been using this more and more, this less and less precisely to keep the control. So, uh, you know, a dumb phone is a, my way of coping a little bit, I suppose. And it is a smart move yeah. because by doing that, what you actually do is, is you create that healthy boundary. Of, yeah. and, and I imagine you have times where you have you where you're using your smartphone and then when you just want to be reachable for conversation, you use, well, the, the old style. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. call it dump. Huh? It's, no, it's that's, what so dump. Call. that's what they call it. That's the technology industry's term for it. Okay. So. okay. Uh, now, what about social media? So, uh, you know, one of the things that I have found and I've written a little bit about this is social media, there tends to be a positive bias. People tend to post positive. I got promoted. I succeeded. This, my boyfriend and I went here. Look at these great pictures. Look at us. And so there's this natural bias to present a positive image of oneself. Nobody posts, I lost my job today. My girlfriend dumped me. My boyfriend was left town. I have, you know, I had a big business opportunity and I messed it up. It was a failure. People don't post this on in general, in general. And so as a result, if one is not mindful of the fact that social media is predisposed, biased in a positive sense, one can feel perhaps left behind, depressed. I am not as good as the rest of the world. I've had a negative life relative to what others are experiencing. Um, you know, so I'm, so I'm curious, that's my take on it, but I'm curious, how do you think of social media and how it affects one's sense of wellness or well-being? Yeah, uh, there is data on this, by the way. There's, uh, I mean, it's exactly what, what you describe, uh, yeah. that social media generally doesn't make us happier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, however, we can indeed use social media in a mindful way. First of all, we can create healthy boundaries on the use of social media because yep. there is you, one thing is the trend on social media to amplify the positive. On the other side, there is the perspective of an individual user of, of this um, myriad of, of positive messages and, and, and wows and, and so on. And, and leaving us, uh, well, often anxious and depressed. That's the, the two things that can happen there. Um, now, um, yeah, there's ways of, of going about. One way is, and you mentioned it already, those people who dare, who have the courage to share their failures, um, who can speak from their broken places. That's the place where we actually vulnerably connect with others where we honestly really where we have a real connection is not in in our successes the successes are reinforcing that ego functioning of our mind it's in our broken spaces where we connect with the heart and that's a place where uh, we connect as as human species um, and and to me that's really important there is uh, i'm going to cite another it's it's from from leonard Cohen. Also, a Zen Buddhist uh, who, who passed away, but a great artist. And I'm not sure you know this song, his anthem. Um, he, the core of his anthem, uh, says, "Ring the bell." I'm going to cite it because it's such a beautiful yeah. uh, text. Ring the bell that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Mm. So in other words, it is in our broken places in where we are at our most vulnerable. That's the place where we can have the most meaningful connections and most natural and meaningful connections with others. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's true. Unfortunately, I think people don't have that sense of how to use social media for such purposes. Uh, so, uh, you know, one question that came in here part was, uh, how do you recommend interacting with children as a parent that has to deal with kids in this technology world. Do you have thoughts on how to keep kids more mindful? Yeah, well, I'm the lucky parent of two wonderful daughters. I, I know you also have, have kids. Um, and, and of course, it's a, it's a question. It's a big question. Um, I have tendency to think that my daughters are 
wisely interacting with uh, technology, uh, often wiser than myself. Um, so I am in a way hopeful, but I can't, of course, cannot generalize. And I see many youngsters who do struggle with it uh, seriously, um, with, with basically a technology addiction. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't have a standard solution there. Yeah. How, um, yeah, and, and uh, it, it certainly is, is helpful to, to create boundaries around technology. Um, and, and I think it, if, it's, uh, if we create a kind of negative approach, it won't work in any behavior change. What is needed is, is not uh, to, to forbid or to, no, it's actually to, to provide, uh, to stimulate, to, to have a, a positive else. Uh, alternative. And um, so indeed it's, it's like stimulating um, sports, for instance, and, and stimulating outside, outdoor activities, which of course this year have been more difficult than anything else um, because we were so limited also in our personal freedom. Um, yet there's other things also, uh, little yeah. practices of, of, of uh, like small mindfulness practice, albeit one minute of breathing exercise with your kids. Yeah, yeah. It has the power. Uh, to change their perception and to, well, at least for a moment uh, and do this uh, regularly and you build up that kind of continuous uh, embodied awareness, which is the presence that is needed to tackle those difficult challenges now. Yeah. Now, I know we're going we're gonna, to uh, have an opportunity to experience a, a, a very short but guided meditation with you in a couple minutes here. For it. So I'm looking forward to that. But uh, another question, since you did talk about the, the ch unique challenges of this year, specifically with coronavirus, the question of, you know, what did you learn from this whole experience? Um, you know, any new advice you'd give because of lessons you picked up on from this, you know, imposed restriction on human to human contact, uh, you know, sort of, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Obviously, like most of us, I guess this year I've been uh, focused on resilience practices, and 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 one that has worked really well for me is uh, is to lower my standards, not to and to 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 a certain extent allow some negativity in my being to allow that uh, well that indeed we are always looking very ambitiously at, at the highest success and we want to achieve and so on and so on. Well, now this is impossible and that risks to make us depressed. And uh, lowering our standards, just having less of an expectation that can help us to, and then I'm, I'm referring to, to Brother David, the Benedictine monk, uh, Austrian monk who actually migrated to the US with his theory on, on gratefulness. If we have lower expectations, uh, we, it's much, easier to see the miracle to see the wonder that life is about and and then and well and build joy by practicing gratefulness by in in ridiculous small things not in the the real big picture because we're we're st stopped from reaching that but in small things like like the sun coming up or like the fact that i can breathe um yeah. the fact that i feel my pulse in my heart uh, and so on. Um, in small things, in in the gratitude of of being healthy, um, the gratitude of of being together with family, um, the fact of just and maybe we can uh, just an invitation. This is proven. Like we can't touch others, but we can touch ourselves. And actually, on a hormonal level. Uh, it has a similar effect. It reduces our, if we, if we meaningfully touch ourselves, uh, our cortisol and, and sustain doing that after 20 seconds, there is a clear indication that cortisol levels go down. Uh, so which is the stress hormone goes down and, and those uh, neurotransmitters associated with positivity like uh, serotonin and, and dopamine and, and oxytocin, they go up. So lovingly, kindly holding ourselves is another way, another strategy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so there was a question about what you do on a day-to-day basis to stay grounded and well, you know, organized and, and to promote your own personal well-being. So what, what is your daily routine if you have one? <laughs> I guess that's the question I've got here. <laughs> yes, and it's a very good question. because, And it's also part of the solution is building structure for yourself, getting up in the morning. Uh, it's not because we're not going somewhere, but making yourself nice uh, to be ready for the day as if you would have to go out and meet other people, even if you're staying in a space alone, Um, having sufficient uh, body movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, I try to walk an hour every day. Sometimes I take my calls on a walk. Well, not this one, that's not possible, but but it's people understand that from each other that okay this one needs a walk now so and and i'm blessed to have uh, to have access to a park uh, here i mean like to a natural environment um do it in nature if you can um eat healthy not too much um so basically the the the, the common sense things that we actually know that bring uh that are the foundation of well-being um just continue doing them and uh, not giving them up uh and, and and of course one important one also with technology which is this year more challenging because we've been spending more time in front of our screens than than any other year before is uh, to build sufficient time between your meetings stop your meetings five minutes before and start your meetings five minutes after or, or work with quarterly uh slots so that you have the time to stand up and, and have a walk around. Sure. Um, they're like really basic things to, to maintain uh, both physical and, and mental health. Yeah, so there's so many questions. I'm not gonna get to all of them, but let me ask one more. Right. We'll use this as a transition because I actually think it's, it's a quite interesting question. You know, uh, people have heard that being mindful, taking breaks, meditating, taking a few minutes, uh, calmly relaxing, letting the mind sort of uh, stop its racing, if you will. Uh, but people say, we don't have time for that. I don't have time uh, for that. And yeah. so, you know, that's, I'm too busy. Uh, this is a luxury. I mean, right now, do you know how many things I have on my list? I have the kids are at home. We got homeschooling. I got to get this. I'm working a business. I got to deal with this contract. This email is waiting for me. I have the contractor, the snowplow guy has showed up. He needs to get paid for his cleaning, the shoveling. I've got the mail. I've got, you know, life is crazy. It's overwhelming. Two kids, this, that, what's going on? How can I make time for this? It's a luxury. So- um- I would argue that it's a luxury, but uh, how to make time for, I mean, it's the catch 22, because basically, and we are are conditioned like that, everything in the outside world is more interesting, Mm. seemingly, than our inner universe, right? Um, And we all the time feel the needs, and it's good to explore why we feel like having that need. However, if we can build, and, and I'm challenging you and the people who asked uh, that question, often they're executives there uh, uh, who, who really need that time to, to really see clear, make sound decisions. Yeah. I promise you, if you can make three minutes in a day, that is at morning when you open your computer, at noon when you start your lunch break, and in the evening again when you leave your workspace three times one minute of putting yourself in a vertical posture taking distance from any screen and basically explore your inner world while breathing attentively just one minute yeah so three times a day so you'll notice the difference it's a Bart, great investment. <laughs> Bart, we know we have people have scheduled this time slot to be for an hour and we have at least four to five minutes left. So I know you offered, and I would like to take you up on this kind offer to lead a guided meditation for uh, whatever, four or five minutes, whatever you have here. And if people have already budgeted this time, there's no excuse that you don't have time. <laughs> it's already, <laughs> it's booked. So uh, let, let me, let me turn it over to you for the next four to five minutes, if you can. Um, and then we'll, uh, I'll wrap up after that. All right. Thanks for the opportunity as well. And, and for those, especially who are not used to do this, please join me. You're invited to join me in a minute of silence.
So I'm going to invite you to sit well, straight in a vertical posture, the head on top of the heart, the heart on top of the hara. And feel the gravity of the body. Feel how we are supported by the seat that we are sitting on. And as we are invited into the stillness of this moment, we move away from the conceptual world of analytical thinking into the world of sensations, feelings, emotions, perceptions, and without trying to push those away, let's open up for a moment to what lives within. And as much as it's appealing to immediately explore a fault and, and get entangled in that, let's keep our attention for this few minutes, simply tuned on the awareness of her body. Following the rhythm of our breathing. by doing so, we develop calmness, clarity of mind, and we become confident to creatively and courageously connect with our true self and meaningful with others. And then every act in the world, as profane as it may be, becomes sacred. So thank you, Vikram, and thanks for the audience to participate together. Well, Bart, thank you. This was a real treat for all of us to have the opportunity to spend some time with you, to hear your story. Thank you for sharing. Uh, thank you for sharing your time and also uh, your wisdom. Uh, it's been very kind of you. Uh, and in particular, on a year like this, uh, that 2020, that's been challenging for so many people in so many ways, um, it's nice to be reminded of some of these, uh, these, these, these bare truths, if you will, uh, that we should keep uh, front of mind for ourselves um, and allow for a greater sense of well-being. So uh, thank you, Bart. Thank you uh, everybody for joining uh, this Think For Yourself webinar series. Uh, I've enjoyed it. It's been, uh, we've done 20 of them this year, uh, beginning with discussions around the pandemic and then through all of the, the more recent 10 that you heard. I will again be starting this in the spring. I look forward to, uh, to seeing you all uh, again in the spring, starting probably in late January. And in the meantime, I just thought I would end by wishing everyone a very happy, healthy, uh, and festive uh, holiday season with best wishes for a absolutely spectacular 2021. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at 
www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.